Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. The Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Syme, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm Andy Wilson, joined by co-host Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hi, Andy. How are you today? I'm good. And also Hugh Syme. Hey, Hugh. Hey, how are you, Andy? Today we welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, Donna Jean Godshow McKay. Did I get that right, Donna? Yes, you did. Donna Jean was co-vocalist of The Grateful Dead in the 1970s creating a lasting impact on legendary songs such as The Music Never Stopped, Cassidy, Mississippi Half-Step, Playing in the Band, and many, many more. But prior to her years in The Grateful Dead, she was a 1960s session musician at the legendary Muscle Shoals Sound Studio in Alabama. Most recently, Donna Jean kind of went what I would call, I guess, full circle, went back to recording at uh, Muscle Shoals for the reworking and release of the Donna Jean and the Tricksters classic song, Shelter, which we're going to talk about, a song originally recorded many years ago, but was revived in uh, 2021. So without further ado, welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Donna Jean. Well, thank you. And I'm glad to be here with all of you boys. Donna Jean, it's a, it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful to have you with us today. Well, my pleasure. And I got to say, I saw you with the Grateful Dead in on February 3rd. I had to look it up. I knew it was 79, but it was February 3rd, 1979, which I think was the convention center in Indianapolis. And true to the spirit of the event, I don't remember much about it. I remember it being a wonderful thing, um, but I don't have, you know, a lot of 
a lot of memory about details that night, let's just say. Well, you can join my club. <laughs> okay. You might not have details of that night either. But, oh, of course uh, not. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to touch briefly because I'm a guy that, and I know most of the people, a lot of people that follow the Grateful Dead are, are the live people. They got every live show, this and that. I've always been a record guy. I like studio music. And uh, and I had all those records from that period that of that you were in the band and i want to touch briefly on on my five favorite grateful dead recordings during your time with those guys if i may just so our listeners can check these songs out if they haven't had a chance to sure on shakedown street france is a great example of that double vocal thing that that you and bob weir did together that was really precise and worked out i mean i had forgotten just how much you guys did that together but it was really, I mean, you could tell you guys put some time in on that uh, and the other tunes that you were doing that on. And then on that same record, your song From the Heart of Me, that's a very cool tune, by the way. Thank you. And it has that classic dead sound. It's got that ha halftime funk groove, but it's got those odd meters mixed in it. You know, it's kind of when they were starting right. to remind me of Steely Dan a little bit. Um but then on Terrapin Station, which is one of my favorite records, your song Sunrise. Oh, yeah. And your song Sunrise, that's the perfect showcase for the range of your voice, I thought, as well as being a great song. You got you were down in the low section and really high, and it just that's it's it's really a great song. You guys should all listen to that. Well, thank you, you very much. Your version of Dancing in the Streets is cool as can be. Again, you and Bob singing together, and it's very well worked out, but my all-time favorite song, other than maybe Alabama Getaway, is Passenger, which is on that same record. Great, fast-paced rock and roll tune. And again, you and Bob Weir are nailing those. It's just killer. So I just uh, encourage all of our listeners to check these great songs out. Uh, listen to Donna Jean and what she was doing with those guys back then. It's fabulous. Now, if you could just take us back. Let's go back uh, in history a little bit to growing up in the Muscle Shoals area. And how you worked your way into being a session singer there? Well, the truth of the matter is, it was, I would hardly describe it as working my way into it because I was born into it. Hmm. And uh, all of us, including the Muscle Shoals Swampers, Rick Hall, the whole bunch of us, <clears throat> just kind of grew up together. And so all of us who knew each other anyway and were music minded we automatically gravitated to the studios and that's was our hangout uh is started out as fame recording and then of course then muscle show sound became quite a thing but we just grew into it it was an organic thing i'm curious to know where they first heard you sing uh, at what point in your life did they actually hear you and say, oh, this girl's got pipes. We've got to bring her into this, this fold. Well, <laughs> I, I don't quite know how to answer that. My one of my best friends was Jeannie Green, who was in the voice group with me in Southern Comfort. That was the name of our background vocal group that did the, the session work. So, okay. you know, we started out, I was about, 17 i think something like that when we started doing you know real big time session work but before that 
I would do demos at Fame and different different studios when I was like fifteen. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when I was twelve, I wrote a song, played the piano, and sang on a talent local talent contest and won the contest when I was twelve, wow. singing about wow. how much in love I was with my boyfriend. You know, <laughs> just anyway. Uh, long story short, I just love to sing, and all of these guys around here love to play music, and it was an organic thing that came together and became something something absolutely magical. Yeah. Boy, no question about that. I mean, the guys in that, you know, all the players, the Swampers, and, and the vocalists, and all the different artists that came down there to record is just, I mean, the songs that you sang on, the, the list... Uh, take a letter, Maria. You know, yeah. He grieves. Uh, when yeah. a man loves a woman, I think everybody in the world's heard that. Percy Sledge, mm-hmm. Neil Diamond's was that Mother Loves Salvation Show. Brother so, loves traveling. Brother loves. Brother loves. That's right. Traveling mm-hmm. Salvation Show. That's it. That's a mouthful right there. Yeah. Tell us about Suspicious Minds. Well, uh, you, you mean my part in it, or how yeah, it came the, about, or what? Just all of that. Our voice group had done the demo on our friend Mark James' song, Suspicious Minds. And, of course, he's the one that wrote it. Mm. We had done the demo. And so when Elvis came to Memphis to uh, record his comeback album, he was passing by. This is the story that I heard, that he was passing by Mark James' office and, and Suspicious Minds happened to be playing. And he stopped and took a listen and said, I want that song and I want those girls. So a little bit later, we got a phone call. But it was quite amazing because Colonel Parker would not let Elvis record anything that they didn't publish. And so that's why Elvis didn't get to do a lot of things that he wanted to do. Hmm. You're talking about 1968, the the NBC comeback? Right Uh, after that, I think. Right after that, because it was 1969 when we did Mm -hmm. Suspicious Minds and In the Ghetto and Rubberneck and some some other things. I don't even remember. um, Oh, so you sang on In the Ghetto and Rubberneck and Toes are all great classics. I've got those 45s. They're fantastic. You do? Yep. Sure do. (laughs) Got all those. All three of those that you just mentioned. Wow. I'm not sure about Rubberneck, and that might have been on an album, but I know I've got it. It was. It was on the same album that Suspicious Minds was on, I believe. I believe. I was a youngster, but I had it. And you're on there. I'm going to go back and listen to all those again. That's (laughs) <laughs> so what was he like? I mean, yeah, I was going to say, did you talk to Elvis? What was he? That like? was my question. He was so kind, generous, encouraging, and the most incredible looking human being I had ever <laughs> feasted my eyes on. I mean, talking about gorgeous. He was, he was so much better looking than any movie or any photograph. Uh, of course, we were just mesmerized, and and of course, here we are in this professional situation, having to deal with being with Elvis Presley, and then trying to be professional at the same time. Right. Sure. So, um, 
So we were, we did our thing and Elvis listened to our voices individually and really individually. Yeah. Wow. On the mics. He was in the control room. Okay. There no and pressure, so, no pressure there. No pressure there. No pressure <laughs> at all. Wow. Anyway, we were totally professional and got our job done and then went to uh, directly after the, uh, the session, we went to the International House of Pancakes in Memphis and screamed bloody murder for, <laughs> for about an hour. We just could not believe what we had just been a part of. Gosh. And we had and we had this little Polaroid uh, uh, photo that somebody had taken uh, with a Polaroid camera. And to me, or as far as I know, that's the only photo that was taken of our voice group while I was in it. And then after I went to California, uh, that was taken of the voice group with Elvis. So anyway, that's the only one you will see. And I was little Donna Thatcher (laughs) back in those days. So anyway, it was a wonderful experience. And he was just, he was great to us, very encouraging and sweet. That's what I hear about him. Um, did you ever work with Steve Binder? Um, not the name doesn't ring a bell. Okay, he was Should the it? one that actually set up the show that at NBC, um, where he and Elvis got together. And while Colonel Parker would have liked Elvis to have done another Andy Williams Christmas special, Elvis wanted to sit in the round with the, almost like the unplug uh, concept that we know now with his band and he never looked better in leather. And he, he did a true comeback special with Steve Binder. So I thought maybe you and Elvis might've talked about that experience. No, I, I did see, I did see the comeback uh, yeah. special, but I, I wasn't a part of it or anything. Yeah. I recently watched the uh, movie. I think it was on the, maybe Amazon prime or something. Uh, the muscle shoals movie documentary. It's fantastic. And you're in it, you know, so many documentaries out now you don't know which ones are great or which ones aren't so great and that's a really good one uh, i thought they did a good job of of telling the yeah. story and whatnot and then i listened to a few of the songs you know uh, when a man loves a woman suspicious minds and others uh in the last 24 hours before talking to you man there's just something about the sound of those songs it's just unbelievable man the beginning of when a man loves a woman you obviously you always think about him singing the chorus but the beginning of that song is like, I forgot how kind of haunting it is right before it really kind of, you know, starts to take off. What an amazing song that is, man. Yeah. Well, I was maybe 19 years old or something like that. And and Percy recorded that not at Fame or not at Muscle Shoals Sound, but a little podunk studio called Quinby. Yeah. And it was in Sheffield, Alabama. And nothing had ever really been done there. I had done some demos, you know, of like Leslie Gore type (laughs) demos, you know, and uh, but Percy just came upon the scene. And my friend Jeannie Green that I was telling you about and her husband, Marlon Green, who produced When a Man Loves a Woman. I don't know if he got credit for it or not, because there was something going on anyway. Mm. Uh, to have something being birthed right before your eyes yeah, that is 
Still today, how many years later? 55. Oh, yeah, man. Good, yeah, goodness gracious. 50th. Still That's going incredible. strong. Some of these things are still going very, very strong. And uh, it's amazing to be a part of it. And one thing I remember saying in the Muscle Shoals movie is you never know when you're making history. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't. True. Good music endures. That's the other truth is that. And good music endures. Yeah. Absolutely. No question. So what other artists and albums did you work on as a session musician? But, you know, obviously those seem to be the ones that probably you get asked about a lot. But what are the other ones that you look back on fondly? Well, I I keep forgetting that that our voice group did. Um, I'd rather be blind with Etta James. And I forget wow. to even tell people that. Wow. Uh, yeah. And I was somebody reminded me of it the other day and I looked in my record book and you know, where we kept records of who we sang with and what songs. And yep, sure enough, we were on that yeah. song. That means you've been pretty successful if you forget about recording with Ed and James. That's one of the all-time classic <laughs> songs right there. Wow. Yeah. God bless you. That's fantastic. That's but so, let's see. Um, who else? Boss Skaggs, his solo album. Boss Skaggs? Uh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. Oh my gosh, Dion Warwick. Yeah. Oh wow, Jenny uh, King, all the Joe Tex, Joe Simon, Solomon Burke, all of that stuff we did. Jeez. Okay, um, that's some of them. Now I'm kind of drawing a blank. Did you Cher, work with Dwayne Alder? Yeah. yeah, worked with Dwayne on Boss Skaggs's album. Okay. Yeah, it, that must if have you been have the LP, if you have the LP. It's got Boz on the front. Then you open it up, and Dwayne Allman is standing up stark naked except for his little hands over his privates. <laughs> and um, I don't have that record. I'd remember that. <laughs> and it's even got our photo in there. But anyway. Nice. My, I have to say this before I forget because I think it's hilarious because it's so close to the truth. My brother says that I am the Forrest Gump of rock and roll. <laughs> because, <laughs> That's, because, That's good. That's because good. I have ended up in some of the most incredible places that I didn't predict or try to find. They just I was just there yes. at the right time, you know, just yeah, the right but, you time. Know, you, you say that, and modestly, I know, but, uh, you know, talent also seems like, you know, things find a way of finding talent, right? So, at the end of the day, I, I think, too, you know, you got to be pretty good to be in those rooms and be in those situations and be thought of, yeah. too. Well, that's true. You have no to have question. the goods. You have to have the goods to start out with. But then the other part of it is that intangible thing that, makes you go ahead and do something no matter how talented you are yeah. some people are True. a jillion times more talented than me and have not been able to do the things that i have that's but very generous of you to acknowledge the the good fortune of just of just providence the fact that you were in the right place at the right time but andy's right too though you know people will find good talent and and there's, there's no question you were in those rooms because of who you are and how you sing. Well, and also part of it is not being denied. 
it, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. it, you know, I was not going to be denied. This was what I was going to do, and I've known that since I was four years old. Wow. And, there you um, go. Well, I was just going to say, and part of it's also being able to make it work, you know, like you got along with your friends that you sang with. And yeah. And being a, person, a personable person, you know, and all those things must have had something to do with all that, too. That's that's definitely in the mix as well. Yeah. Especially when you moved on to being in a rock band, then you got to get along with a bunch of guys all the time. You can tell us about that here in a little bit. Oh, (laughs) oh, believe me, there's plenty of story. Oh, well, we're getting ready for them. (laughs) Andy, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, that's okay. It's a good segue because I was wanting to ask. So did you really walk up to Jerry Garcia and state that Keith was their next pianist? I certainly did. That's awesome. That's so great. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what I'm talking about. Right. You know, uh, 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 you got to have chutzpah. You got to have something to augment your talent. You got to have something that propels it to get out there and, like I said, not be denied. And so, you know, when somebody says, well, I heard that you asked Garcia if Keith could be. No. There was no asking about it. <laughs> you told him. And I told him. Yeah. Now, Keith yeah. was in the band for a while before you officially joined. Yes. So yeah. whose idea was it for you and how were you talked into, into joining the band? Well, Jerry had asked me to join when Keith did. And I just wanted, for some reason, maybe it's the Southern girl in me or whatever it was. I said, I want Keith to get to do it first. Hmm. And that was just the way I felt about it. I wanted him to get to do it first. And so he did two tours and I just kind of woodshedded and learned parts and, and found myself on stage with the Grateful Dead on New Year's Eve of 1971, singing with the band. Nice. That was your intro on New Year's Eve? Yes, amongst all of those people in the audience who I know were going, what the heck? (laughs) Who is this girl (laughs) getting up there with our band? Yeah. You know, those are protective bands too, boy. I'm telling you, they're they're very much rabid when it comes to the Grateful Dead. They own them. And that's why people take the Grateful Dead so personally. You know, uh, yeah, it, because it does translate as a personal thing, even in Robert Hunter's lyrics. You can yeah. take any lyric to any song and anybody can put themselves right into it. Right. And and that was one of the brilliant things about Robert Hunter's lyrics is he did that like nobody else can do it. Except maybe Bob Dylan mm. is uh, write something so timeless that speaks in different ways to different people, something that is so meaningful to their lives. Mm-hmm. And yep. um, that's just the way it is. Kind of like little, par- little parables that he would write. Yeah. They're really, yeah. really, really well written. 
So Donna, usually when we're talking to people, we'll, we'll at, we start to go into a phase where we talk about album covers and artwork and stuff because of Hugh's background. And I was looking over those uh, albums, the studio albums that came out when you were in the band and Wake of the Flood, I think was the first one studio album, right? That you were on. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about artwork and I'll let Hugh step in too, but we'd love to hear kind of just your, you know, your thoughts on that and, and whatnot as we kind of transition. The one thing I've always been curious about because I've been a huge Mouse Kelly fan and a huge respect for rick griffin how mm -hmm. involved were the whole band with how, how the artwork was evolved or was it basically one point person that sort of took care of that for the band and i guess the other question is how important through your whole career both as a consumer and as a musician have you felt album covers to be um you know, for, for yourself, just as, a, as an artist and as a listener? Well, I think they're very important, and they give you a clue as to what's inside. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you don't get a, a clue, you're not as likely to pick it up and purchase it and listen to it. Yeah. But if you have that clue there, you know, that's that's big. I think they're huge Yeah. album covers. I really do. And and for your uh, answering your other question, I was not really involved in the artwork myself, and I don't know which of the band was or wasn't, or how that all came together. Uh, by the time we started doing studio records, I had a baby, and I mean it took everything I had to juggle. You know, yeah. having a baby and nursing and babysitters and this and that and trying to be in the band and learning and being relevant and current, you know, with what they were up to. So sure. I didn't have all that much, hardly anything actually to do with the artwork. They, they never failed to have both that essential identifiable shelf appeal in the store but also just excellent artwork. I mean, it was so West Coast. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, superb Incredible. Artwork. Incredible. Some of my favorites by them are when you were in the band. I mean, uh, the album cover Blues for Allah is... My all-time yeah, favorite. That's, that's very yeah. cool. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, it's just, you know, how many... Where are the words? Where are the words? Yeah. That's why a picture is worth a thousand words. You don't need words when you... You look at yeah. a piece of that, yeah. That's the truth. That's the truth. So, what was it like being on the road with these guys? I mean, I can't even imagine. No, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't mind spilling the beans, just go ahead and <laughs> let us know. <laughs> no, we were we were all really good friends. Um, I didn't have any trouble being on the road with those guys. Um, and once again you would have had to be a certain type person to even, no matter how much talent you have to get in that band, you had to be of it. And sure. you had to have some talent as well, but you had to be of it and you had to know where it was at with that music. And, uh, you know, to be able to present something of yourself within that context of the Grateful Dead. So I, 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 people ask me that, you know, did you feel like you were minimized or this or that? And I go, no, I wanted to sing with the Grateful Dead. And 
what's uh, uh, one of the beautiful parts about that kind of vocalization is that it wasn't just background singing with them. Most of it was ensemble singing. Right. You, you, also, you also composed. You, you, you're credited as, as a composer and a vocalist with, I'm, I'm just looking at the credits mm-hmm. for Blues for Ella, and you're listed as composer. What is your favorite song that you actually had a hand in, in developing for, for the band? Oh, boy. Well, I, I would have to say a little bit on a lot of it, but yeah. it was a, a little bit, you know, I, I didn't I didn't set out to be for it to be Donna Jean in the Grateful Dead. No, you know, no, no. I, just, I just wanted to sing with them. Yeah. And so I knew where my place was and I I didn't want to venture out of that. I didn't have a desire to. I was part of the band. And Clearly, they, they felt the same way because when you read the list of credits here, it just, you know, lots of people, yourself, um, Keith, Mickey, uh, everybody's got a composer credit. So they're not overlooking the contribution that everybody made to the final um, results, the final song. No, and, and I have to say that when we were about to record Terrapin Station, uh, Garcia approached me and he said, I want you to write a song for, for this, for this album. And he encouraged me to write something for it. So it, it, it was never anything like they were trying to hold me back or anything like that. And, uh, how do you explain no. what kind of musician Jerry was? You know, what, what do you think made him stand out? Well, Many things. Uh, it's who he was as a human being, which is huge. I can't even go there. But the fact was, Jerry listened to all kinds of music all the time. He didn't settle on just listening to rock and roll or just listening to country or just listening to bluegrass or whatever. He listened to everything. And because that was his mindset, was he wanted to glean everything he could about music from wherever the source was. And, and then, of course, he came up with Jerry Garcia's style. Mm-hmm. And it incorporated so much music. And I know that to be a real truth about him because I was around him for nine years, almost nine years. And he listened to all kinds of music all the time. And, uh, and I think that was part of his brilliance that he incorporated that kind of big thinking into his guitar playing and he wasn't trying to imitate anybody right that's for sure yeah he's one of a kind and the whole band it seemed like to me the whole band that was the whole thing about the grateful dead is then that's why they'd stretch those songs out everybody was listening to everybody i always say that the first thing about being a musician a singer or whatever is that you can't Go five steps if you're not listening. If you're not a listener, get out of the band. Yeah. Yep. 
because that's what it takes in order for something like what the Grateful Dead did, what they had were the best known for was the improvisational thing. You can't you can't do that if you're not keenly listening to one another. Right. And uh, that's they pulled it off because they were listeners. They and sure I did. always say about Kreutzmann that Kreutzmann he had the ability just from the space that was inside his head. He he had the the ability to go anywhere at any he was poised to go anywhere at any time because he listened so hard and and that's the way it is in jazz you know exactly they, you got to do that or you you can't be in the band yeah. and uh billy did that beautifully and i think you know on a certain level he's undermined for the fabulous drummer he is oh i think i think most drummers know that he was the, the okay what, good. He, what he was good i'm glad there. to hear that no no no, no. yeah I, I read that. i read bill's book and it's it's really great and i mean that's part of the grateful dead thing is that the, the, all those guys love jazz and they were listening to john coltrane and stuff like that and you can tell how that permeated that music they just went places that no other rock band ever did or ever has actually i mean there's jam bands now but it's different um but um now bill bill knew what he was doing there's no question oh, of about it he did he, he's uh he's not underrated to certainly not to my ears and anybody i know so well that's good because he was positioned to go anywhere at any time and it just he, he made he he glued the thing together and i know he and loved keith, jerry uh, oh yeah oh they yeah were very tight and and keith as well came from a classical background he and phil both came from you know that background but keith's mom and dad were both opera singers they taught music oh. they they were that kind of people and they taught keith uh keith's dad taught him how to play uh the key uh, the p piano not even keyboard at that time it was piano sure and um so keith grew up playing classical music and then by the time he was about 16 no i think he was younger than that he started playing jazz when i heard keith for the first time play the piano, which we were already in love by the time he heard me sing and I heard him play the piano. I'd never heard him play before. And we had already decided to get married. Wow. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it was heavy. That's wild. You know, yeah. It is wild. You know, obviously, I, I went and saw The Grateful Dead as a fan long before I was in the even in the business. Um, but one thing that came to mind, I thought, I need to ask her this. Um, you know, their songs uh, live in person were always so long, you know, long instrumental jams and stuff. Did you ever find that to be awkward being, you know, being on stage while they're, while they're doing these long jams? Like, what did you do during that time? You just kind of look out in the audience, you know, were you thinking about, you know, your, your uh, grocery list for the next day? Or were you like, hey, I need to call my, my family, check in with them? I mean, you had plenty of time, oftentimes, I would imagine, to kind of think of all kinds no, of things. No, I didn't. Um, I had to be... I had to be right there with them every second. And, okay. Okay. And uh, yeah. anticipate what they were going to do next. And I had to be in the band. I was 
in right. the band. Were the vocals ever sort of um, liquid enough that you could actually jam? I know the instrumental part would go off, but did you ever mm -hmm. find that as singers, you also did some things that were impromptu and, and improvisational? Well, yeah, not, of course, as deeply as the band got into it instrumentally. Yeah, but, yeah sure. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, we had the freedom to pipe in there whenever we wanted. But, well, fair enough. But for, for the most part, we, we kind of stayed, you know, in our lane. <laughs> mm -hmm. Did you guys yeah. have a set list every night or did you just go? Hell no. That's what I, that's no. what I thought. I thought I'd heard no. that. No, no, no. Everybody <laughs> thinks the whole set list thing. We never had a set list. We knew yeah. what we were going to go at on stage and play the first song. Okay. We knew what the first song was going to be. And we knew what the encore was going to be. And that was wow. it. And you so know, that's every, so... That's so different than what most of us uh, that in the music business, you know, most people go out and play the same show every night, or at least they have alternates or whatever, but they pretty much know what they're going to do. And you guys totally just said, we're going to start with this and let's see what happens. And let's see what happens. Wow. It's that's incredible. Adventure. <laughs> music yeah. is not only something to listen to, it's an adventure to participate in. And so, that was one of the other of the many beauties of the Grateful Dead was the adventuresome part of going to a Grateful Dead concert, because even if they play Jack Straw one night, they're going to play it. Yeah, the chord changes would be the same. But in between, it could it was never the same. Right. And so that's why that's why. The, the deadheads wanted never wanted to miss a show. Yeah. Even if they played the same songs the next night. They turned them into something different. different. Yeah. It would be different. It was an did, adventure. Did you ever find that a jam became so, um, well, for the musicians, seductive that they kept playing the jam and crowded out a lot of potential other songs that could have been included in the set? Or was there a good balance between? Because I hear the jams could have been legendarily long. Um, so I, want, I wanted to know if some of those jams were s so long that the 18 songs that you planned ended up being more like six or seven songs. Well, we didn't plan. So yeah, that's yeah. that. Well, that you could have played in a three-hour set. But we could have. But that wasn't the point. Yeah. The yeah. point was to have an adventure. So describe your musical journey, I guess, post Grateful Dead. You know, how do you come out of something so big for so many years? You know, how, what was that like, stepping out of that? Well, Keith and I have been in the band for eight and a half years, something, something like that. And, of course, Zion was born during that time. And things started getting rough around the edges, you know, with the extra things that were going on and I'm not going to get into that but anyway Keith and I knew that that we had to take Zion and take a break we just knew we had to and also at the same time in the same situation the band knew that we needed to go mm -hmm. so it was a mutual decision but yeah. they were they were involved way involved in the decision 
for Keith and me to leave the band. And Keith and I were saying to one another, how in the world do you quit the Grateful Dead? You know, mm, sure. Because we knew we had to for Zion's sake and for our marriage. You know, when you're, when you're married and you're together 24-7, you know, you're in a rock and roll band, all of the externals that happen, uh, it's, it's a tough gig, you know. Yeah. When, no question. When, when it comes down to it, and especially after that long a time. Sure. Yeah. So we knew we had to get out of the band, and they knew we had to get out of the band. So. And you were in Jerry's band too, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, there's the, that. The Gar Jerry and, Garcia band, you guys and, were touring. Both of you were in that band Keith, too. Yeah, and the yeah. Keith and Donna band. Right. And we right. had a kid, you know, and so it was just, uh, we needed a, a break. Yeah. And, uh, we had to take it. I'm bad. We had to take it. Now, did you attend the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony when you guys were? I didn't. didn't. I didn't. Mm -mm. What year was that? We had just moved. We had just moved to Alabama when that happened. Okay. Wasn't in '95 or '90? What was it? Midnight. Yeah, I I was thinking early to mid '90s sometime. I can't remember. Yeah. Now, what led to you getting back on stage with Dead and Company, and and what was that experience like? Well, it's always always great to be on stage with those guys. I mean, just to be with them, number one. But Bobby and I have remained probably the closest of the remaining band members. And, you know, we're like just two months apart, born the same year. Hmm. We're both the same age. We're, we just started out being really good friends and stayed really good friends. That's great. I understand Zion is a, a musician himself in, in, in his own band. Um, yeah. Does he ever call on mom to, to partake in the vocal parts of his? Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes he does. As a matter of fact, they're just releasing a single at Boombox. And it, it so happens, this is so funny, that when Zion sings, when he does harmony with himself on recordings, mm-hmm. and he does the high harmony, it sounds exactly like me. Oh, I mean, sure. <laughs> exactly. And I, I can't even tell the difference. He inherited your pipes then, eh? Well, <laughs> I don't know. I, I guess of a fashion. But Keith sang high, too. But yeah. the, the fact that the timbre in mine and Zion's voices are exactly the same. <laughs> and cool. so when, when he sings... Those high parts, it sounds exactly like me. That's but, blood. Uh, How much do you charge him? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Double scale. Yeah. <laughs> no, I charge him. I charge him. I love you, Mom. <laughs> I love you, Mom. I figured you got a good price on that. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> so tell us about um, the shelter um, in the recent. Yeah, that's a cool track. Yeah. Okay. Do you guys like that song? Yeah. I just listened yeah. to it yesterday. I listened to it a couple of times. Oh, spooky two cool. times but i don't like anything but i liked it <laughs> i'm hard to please <laughs> but no it was, it was really cool yeah well thank you so you overdub so you cut it a few years ago and then you overdub more stuff on it right well here's the deal here's the skinny on what went down with shelter we recorded it with donna jean and the tricksters back in 2007 and it turned out, you know, the track then turned out pretty well. It turned out really good, as a matter of fact. It was fine. But Jeff Matson, 
who was in Dark Star Orchestra. You, you know who Jeff Matson is, don't you? Yeah, I know those guys. Yep. Uh, but Jeff and I wrote the song together. He wrote okay. the chord changes. I wrote the melody and the lyrics. And so Jeff and I talked for years about wanting to beef up the the vocals on those choruses. And um, at the time when I wrote the lyrics to the song, something was going on overseas somewhere and it was rough. It was really rough and little kids were getting killed. And I mean, it was a bad scene. I remember that when I was writing the song and it just really affected me. So the song really takes on that, that vibe of, oh my gosh, you know, some, something's going on here, you know, and like I said, it affected me really deeply. And, and then how many years later, the same things are going on only a hundred times worse all over the planet and just in the, the global warming and all of this stuff, it was compounded to such a degree that combined with the fact that Jeff and I had wanted to redo these vocals and combined with the song now had more relevance even today than it did then. Sure. Yeah. And I have this studio here and, Muscle Shoals, and we recorded it at the Nuthouse Recording Studio, and it's called the Nuthouse because the guy who owns it is named Jimmy Nut. <laughs> but anyway, what happened was I got my friends, these three girls who do most of the background singing here in uh, in the studios. I got them to come and redo the background vocals, and they just nailed it. I mean, they just they pounded it. Don't you think? Yeah, think? the yeah the BGVs are are strong, big time. Yeah, they are. Yeah, it's a good one. And yeah. uh, and then they were so strong that I said, okay, now what I want is I want the rhythm section to be tribal. I want it just to really punch and. Um, so my husband, David McKay, is a bass player, a fine bass player, uh, redid the, the bass part. And Jimmy Nutt, who's also a drummer, replaced a good deal of the, the, the drums on okay. the rhythm section. And it just beefed it up and took it into a whole different place. It was a whole different song. Oh, yeah. That bass line's got kind of driving eighth note thing. Mm -hmm. Moves it right along. Mm -hmm. Very cool. So anyway... We got what we wanted, and uh, and Jeff and I just said, let's just put this out as a single. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, glad you did. And uh, so that's what we did. Even to your term tribal, you know, the cover. I'm looking at the cover now. Um, it's pretty cool too. It is Very tribal, nice. isn't it? Yeah, it's lovely. But I wasn't even thinking that then. Back no. when we did the cover, but things are prophetic, you know. They yep, that's how things turn. work out sometimes. Yep. Whew. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Oh, we sure do. Nice to meet you, Donna. Well, nice to meet you guys. Fantastic to talk to you. Thank you but so much. Best of luck. Continued success. And you guys too. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. Toodaloo. Appreciate it. All the best. Bye. Bye. We'll see you. Bye bye.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 